thankful for that song and for God's provision. And uh, not only does God provide a Savior, but He also provides what we need each and every day of our lives. He is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And we can trust in Him to take care of us, right? So we are going to be in Mark today. Book of Mark. You're going to be turning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Last week we were continuing our series in uh, in which we've entitled uh, Refocus. And we've been trying to get a clear picture of Christ. So we've been refocusing on Jesus. And... Um, Anyway, we were seeing the uh, self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and at the same time, we were also looking at the sinners, uh, the publicans and the different ones that the Pharisees were condemning, and we were challenging ourselves to uh, look at ourselves rather than pointing at others, especially whenever we were thinking about Pharisees and we were looking at the self-righteous, it's hard to put that label on ourselves or see those tendencies in ourselves. It's easy to point at other people, right? We can see other people's flaws and whatnot. But instead, we were looking at ourselves and we saw that uh, rather than looking at everybody else's faults and ignoring our own, that we should instead turn to ourselves and see our need for Christ within us our need for his righteousness, because our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? And so for those who are self-righteous, uh, he offers up salvation and forgiveness. He will cleanse and heal and correct. But on the other hand, we looked at the sinners, and the sinners uh, would have been the ones who were, instead of being self-righteous, they were self-condemning. They were trapped in this uh, idea of seeing only their flaws, seeing themselves as broken and uh, uh, basically seeing themselves as a lost cause because everyone else had given up on them and essentially they had given up on themselves. And whenever uh, both of these groups uh, looked to Jesus instead, whenever they looked to Jesus and turned their focus on him rather than themselves or rather than others, they saw for themselves that they could have forgiveness, that they could have cleansing, that they could be loved by God, accepted of him, and that he could do a work in their hearts and their lives that only he could do. And so both the self-righteous and the self-condemning need Christ. And so today we're going to be skipping ahead in our series because, as I said already, uh, next Sunday is Easter. And so this is the beginning of what some refer to as Holy Week. And this is uh, looking at the week leading up to the, or excuse me, to the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And I figured it was only appropriate for us as a church and as Christians to kind of turn our focus to that week in Jesus' life, toward that event that uh, has changed the course of all history and of humanity, and especially has changed the course for us. And I am thankful for Jesus. I am thankful for uh, the life which he lived, but I'm even more thankful that he was willing to shed his blood and give up his life as a substitute to give up his life on my behalf so I can obtain eternal life and forgiveness of my sins. And so that's something worth celebrating. That's something worth uh, going and visiting here in Scripture. And so 
uh, I'm wanting to, this week, kind of look at what kicked it all off. And we're going to see that in Mark chapter number uh, 11. And we're going to be looking at some of the events from this week nearly 2,000 years ago. It's a long time, isn't it? Anyone remember 2,000 years ago? <laughs> Anybody remember? Okay, anyway. Mark chapter number 11. We're going to start in verse number 1. And it says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. And he saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And a certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he set up on him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and strawed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about on all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you once again. Just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, all of the, the wisdom that is found in it. We thank you, Lord, for the instruction that we receive from it. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us to apply it and to guide us in it. And we just pray, Lord, that you would meet with us today. I pray that you would guide me as I speak on your behalf. And Lord, just be with each of these people that they would uh, glean from this service exactly what they stand in need of, Lord. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us this week as we lead up to Easter, to Resurrection Sunday. Help us, Lord, to meditate and be mindful of what happened, what uh, took place to, to purchase their salvation uh, all these many years ago, Lord, this work that you had done, this uh, action that you accomplished, Lord, that was uh, really the crescendo of all that we read within Scripture, Lord, all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, all uh, sinners around this point, whenever you bled and died for us to give us salvation, Lord, and we just pray, Lord, help us to be mindful of it, help us not take it for granted, help us Lord, to orient ourselves around our identity that we have in Christ, the love that you have for us. And Lord, I just pray, thank you so much for all that you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name and amen. So as we look at this passage, the Bible tells us a lot about Jesus' final week. As a matter of fact, as we look at Scripture, uh, just looking at the book of John, about half of the book of John is dedicated to Jesus' final week. So about half of the book of John, okay? Think about this just a minute. Half the book of John covers about a three-year period, and then the last half covers a one-week period. There was a lot that went on. John himself said that if he would uh, record all of the things which Jesus said and did, that the world could not contain the volumes that would be written. So Jesus was busy in his lifetime, right? Jesus was busy in that three and a half years that he was on this earth, but... The most important part of that 
was what it all led up to, and it was the final week. And I think this passage that we read today is what really was pivotal, what really kicked it all off. And what was going on in this is that Jerusalem was being filled. If you can kind of transport yourself back, allow your imagination to drift back there, and think about what would have been going on. It was the week of the Passover. This was something that the Jews had celebrated for hundreds of years. This was their memorial of whenever uh, the Lord led them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, and they were celebrating it year by year, and what they didn't realize was that they were uh, picturing what Jesus was getting ready to do this week, that all of this pointed to Jesus, and we're going to be seeing that Wednesday night, by the way, but anyway, uh, all these things were pointing to Jesus, and they didn't even realize it. And so for this week, Jews from all over the region, from outside of Israel even, were going to be coming into Jerusalem. They would be surrounding the temple. They would be bringing in their lambs and offering up their sacrifices, gathering together and meeting with family that they hadn't seen, friends that they hadn't seen. And it would have been a festival. It would have been a celebration of sorts during that time. And so the atmosphere would have been one of celebration. It would have been one of joy. It would have been uh, very electric. But adding to all of that was the fact that Jesus, for three and a half years, had been going about doing miracles, uh, healing people, and teaching as no one had ever taught before. And people could sense that something was going on, that things had been building for this three and a half years, each time that the the feast of the Passover would come around, of course, Jesus and his disciples would come into town. But each time Jesus' influence and his ministry was growing greater and greater and greater. And so most likely all the conversations amongst those uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that were descending upon that place was going to be centered around Jesus and what Jesus was up to. People would be debating, they would be discussing, they would be thinking this would have been the conversation around the campfires and around the dinner tables and all these different things, is what is Jesus going to do? What is all this leading up to? Where is this going to go to? And uh, it would have been an exciting time for all of them. Just before this passage, if we would go back and look on a timeline, Jesus sets down with Lazarus at Simon's house, or Simeon's house, I can't remember which it is. He sits down with him, and many people gather around because they want to see the man that Jesus raised from the dead, as well as the one that did the raising. And so there was an excitement about this. This man was able to raise people from the dead. And then we have this situation that arose whenever Jesus came riding into town on a donkey. And we look at that, and we think, well, there's there's nothing great about that. But the timing, the atmosphere And even the very actions that Jesus was doing would have very much excited the Jewish people. He was fulfilling prophecy that was given hundreds of years earlier that whenever the Messiah came, he would be lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. That's what the Bible says. And so anyway, whenever Jesus comes riding into town at this time, in this way, everybody says, this is it. Something big is getting ready to happen. He is the Messiah. He is going to come. He is going to deliver us. He is going to overthrow Rome. All of these things are going to happen. And so they are all waving their their palm fronds and they're throwing down branches in the way and they're closing the way and they're all shouting, Hosanna in the highest, which means save now. 
And so they are looking at Jesus and they are calling on him to save them as a people, as a country, as a culture, if you will. They are looking for immediate deliverance at that time. And so people are expecting something. That's going to be kind of our theme this morning is expectations. And so as this is continuing onward, we find that Jesus comes, looks around the city. He goes out. He comes back the next day and on the way he curses the fig tree. And that is symbolic showing that Israel, who was supposed to accept him, who was supposed to be showing fruit, had not yet produced fruit. And for a time, they were going to be set aside. They had, although they had welcomed him as their deliverer, they did not see him as a savior, as a Messiah in the way that he had come. They hadn't listened to anything that he had taught. They hadn't seen any of the things for what they were. Instead, they had in their minds what they thought he was going to be and what they thought he was going to do. And they said, okay, Jesus, we're ready for you to do what we want you to do. And he knew that at that time, they were going to reject him. He curses the fig tree. Then he comes into the temple and everybody's expecting him to make a, a, a beeline, if you will, for Pilate's Hall and to throw out the Romans and the, the Gentiles. And instead, he goes to the temple and throws out the religious leaders and the changers of money and cleanses the temple. And they say, wait a minute, we weren't wanting our temple cleansed. We were wanting our government cleansed. And so things take a turn. See, there was a high point as Jesus was coming. It looked as if they were ready to accept him. But whenever he didn't do what they expected, he became rejected. He came in daily teaching within the temple and teaching the, the, the Jews that were there. And if we were looking at a timeline, him coming in on the triumphal entry, it would have been somewhere between Friday and today. Okay? I lean toward Friday, and that may have changed from what I believe last year because I'm still trying to wade through the timeline and figure all this out. But it says that it was six days before the Passover. The Passover would have been about Thursday. The crucifixion would have been about Wednesday, not on Good Friday. Okay? So the crucifixion would be on Wednesday. I might allow it to get by with Thursday. I'm not entirely convinced, but most likely Wednesday. Okay? So that gives you an idea of where we're at on all this. But anyway, so he's coming in daily. He's teaching. And they have all of these ceremonies that are going through the Passover week. One of the ceremonies they do is they have huge torches that can be seen throughout the entire city that are on the, the temple complex. And there is a ceremony in which they're lighting these huge torches. And they are to commemorate uh, whenever the Lord led them in the wilderness as a pillar of fire. And so from the temple, symbolizing the Lord's presence uh, before the Jews, symbolizing his presence in the temple because he hadn't been there for a while. They had long forsaken him. And so they had a symbol of that. And so Jesus came and stood before them and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. That has a different meaning now, doesn't it? They had another ceremony that they would have done where they drew water out and they brought it into the temple, symbolic of whenever the Lord provided for their needs and provided the water whenever they were about to thirst to death in the wilderness. And so they are remembering those things that God had done and Jesus says before all of them, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink of the water of life freely. And so that adds a different dimension to the things that he is saying. 
And so they're hearing him say this, I am the light, I am the water. These things that you are remembering, it was me all along. I was the one that was providing. And he is presenting himself saying, I am your Lord and your God. I'm not just a military deliverer. And really it all falls on deaf ears because he's not meeting their expectation. And so we come to uh, the middle of the week and he pulls his disciples off to the side, away from all of the crowds. He takes them aside and takes them up into the upper room. And I can't imagine what this would have been like. The disciples would have been confused. They probably would have been discussing some of the messages that he preached, the crowds that were gathering, the miracles that he was doing. And they were expectant of what Jesus was going to accomplish they could tell that something was going to happen, but not what they thought. And so as Jesus is there, they probably perceived the heaviness that he had because he knew that his hour had come. He had told them plainly that his hour had come and that he was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He told them plainly that he was going away and they didn't hear it. They didn't even take it to mind because it didn't fit their plan. It's not what they were expecting. And so anyway, as he sat there with them and he instituted the Lord's Supper and he says, this is my body that was broken for you. This is my blood that was shed. They took it as some kind of a strange parable. And they said, yeah, half the time he speaks in cryptic forms. We don't understand what he's saying. And they probably figured it to be something like that and just kind of shook it off and said, well, it makes sense later on. And it did. And then it came to a point in time where he girded himself with a towel. He washed their feet and became as a servant to them. And they said, hold on for a second. This, this doesn't fit with what we're expecting out of Jesus. And after this, Jesus dismisses, uh, just, excuse me, dismisses Judas. Judas goes and uh, informs the guards and the, the temple guards and such and the religious leaders of where Jesus is going to be. And soon the disciples and Jesus adjourned to go out until under the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to pray, and the disciples, they're tired from all that's been going on. They're excited about all the festivities and the prospects that they have. But Jesus is sober and solemn and in prayer and in misery and in heartache, but they're too tired to be too concerned with it, so they go to sleep. Soon the companies are going to come. They're going to arrest him. Peter is going to whip out the sword that he's got, cut off the high priest's servant's ear, being the great marksman that he was, right? And Jesus is going to reattach the man's ear. Crazy, right? And so he's led away. The disciples scatter. Peter denies Jesus. Jesus is beaten. He's put through a series of uh, false trials or fake trials and stuff, falsely accused. And then by daybreak, he is convicted. By the middle of the day, he is on the cross. By three in the afternoon, he cries out, it is finished, and gives up the ghost. By nightfall, he is in the tomb, sealed, and the next day is the Passover. And so if you would try to process in your mind what happened in that less than seven days, more like five days probably that I just 
recounted in that short amount of time, it would have been a whirlwind. It goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And every bit of it was orchestrated by God. Every bit of it was part of his plan. Every bit of it was carried out according to his foreknowledge and for his purposes. But what made the difference for the spectators, for the people watching, is they didn't know what God was doing. They knew what they wanted him to do, right? Have you ever had expectations of somebody? You ever had unmet expectations for somebody? Has anyone ever had unmet expectations of you that they didn't tell you about? People that you disappointed and you didn't even realize what they were expecting you to do? It happens all the time, doesn't it? Expectations are destructive. Expectations cause so many different problems in our lives. We have expectations of everyone. Everybody has expectations of us. It ruins relationships. Many times, husbands will have expectations of their wives. Oftentimes, they're uncommunicated expectations that their wives fail to live up to. The wives will have expectations of their husbands. It's not one-sided. And if the wives communicate them to the husbands, the husbands don't get it because, well, who understands a woman, right? That's right. Sorry, had to say that, right? <laughs> so anyway, the wives have expectations for husbands, and the husbands don't understand or don't have them communicated to them, and they don't meet the expectations. It causes stress within the relationship, and it causes resentment and bitterness anger, frustration, anxiety, all kinds of things. Parents have expectations for the children and children for the parents. They go unmet. Friends have expectations of other friends, employees of their employers, employers of their employees. You see how this goes all throughout society? We have expectations because in our minds, we have already written out the script we think that we have some semblance of control. We think we know how things are going to transpire. We have in our minds that this is going to go this way. They're going to behave in this way. They're going to say this. They're going to do that. We're going to respond in this way. All of these things are going to work together, and everything is going to be great. And then whenever, for some reason, they didn't get a copy of the script that we have written, whenever the actors don't play their roles as we have designed... Then there's frustration. Then there's disappointment. Then there's discouragement. And then there's breakdown of relationships. There is sorrow. There's problems. All because of these expectations. We're not nearly as in control. We're not nearly as knowledgeable. We're not nearly as competent as we think that we are. Because the plan that we concoct in our own minds rarely, if ever, happens. Right? And so in Jesus' day, many people had expectations for who he was and what he was going to do. And for many of them, it was their downfall. And so that's what I want to look at in the next few minutes. What are you expecting? 
And so let's look at the disciples first. What was their expectation of Jesus? We can kind of get a good view of what their expectation was because of some of the conversations that they had that they recorded in Scripture. I'm kind of glad for how candid they were because a lot of the descriptions that we have and the conversations that we have were written by the ones who were guilty, right? We have the apostles, the disciples, John, writing down some of the conversations that were really quite damning of him, and he was being transparent. He's like, yeah, we were messed up. We didn't, we didn't know what we were doing back then. That's one of the reasons why I know that the Bible was of God and not of men, because if men wrote it of their own accord, they would have left those parts out, right? Yeah. You're always going to be the hero in your own biography, but that's not the case with John's writings. And so anyway, what we find in this is that the, uh, the disciples were jockeying for position. They were arguing who is going to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand whenever he enters into the kingdom. Who is going to be first? Who is going to be the one who has the most power, the most authority? Who is going to be the most important whenever Jesus becomes king? And so what the disciples are looking for is they wanted personal exaltation. They wanted to be brought up high. They wanted to excel. They wanted to be lifted up. And Jesus was their ticket to power and position. Most of them had spent their lives as nobodies, right? They were fishermen. The tax collector was wealthy, but he was an outcast. Nobody liked him. And so they spent their lives as nobodies, and Jesus was going to make them somebody. Just wait, we will show them all whenever we are setting up on high, looking down low on all of them. That's one reason it would confuse them horribly whenever Jesus girded himself and washed their feet as a servant and said, the greatest of you will become a servant of all. And they're like, wait, that doesn't play into our plan. That's not according to our expectation. They thought that the crowds were going to continue to grow. Jesus' power and influence would continue to grow. And all of this would continue until Jesus sat on the throne and they took their place as his royal advisors. Could you imagine their big plans for Jesus were political? In their best case scenario, we are going to be politicians. We are going to be political hacks. We are going to be the the T shacks. We're going to be the Senate. What you know? Minister. Yeah, we're going to be ministers. We're going to be yeah, that was their aspiration. Okay, Jesus is going to be king, and we are going to be one of the ones that ride his coattails to the top. And so Jesus told about his death and departure, but that didn't fit their plan. They ignored it. And as Jesus hung on the cross, their expectations were completely crushed. Their script went up in flames, and they said, we never expected it to go this way. So there was lots of confusion right after Jesus' death. They were broken. They were confused. They didn't know what in the world was going on, what their next step would be. Because they hadn't been listening to Jesus, they had their own expectation for him. We look at Judas specifically here, and Judas seems like he was less interested in the throne, unless maybe it was made out of gold, right? He didn't want power and position. He wanted wealth. It probably irked him a little bit, that Jesus never charged for his miracles. I can imagine Judas consulting and saying, you know, if look at the crowd here. Imagine if we charged a head charge. What if we charged a mission? 
Oh, you were healed of your disease. That'll be five euro, please. It's a lot cheaper than the doctors are charging. I mean, come on, what a deal. You can imagine him like standing out front. Come on up, come on up. You know, like these hucksters that we have today, that these charlatans and these healing services and whatnot, charging a mission, paying your... And he was probably pretty irked because Jesus never charged. He grumbled because of the waste of ointment whenever uh, the woman anointed Jesus' feet. Remember that? What a waste this anoint this ointment could have been sold for basically a year's worth of wages. And it said not, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was the keeper of the purse. He was the one who was the treasurer of the group and that he put his hand into the bag and he was a thief. And so all along, Judas was skimming off the top. They didn't have very much, but whatever they had, Judas was putting his hand to it because he said, Jesus is my ticket to wealth. Every other political or religious leader was making themselves insanely wealthy. If you would have looked at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, at Annas and Caiaphas and some of them, they probably lived in accommodations that would have made the, the Pope jealous. Okay? They were bringing to themselves great wealth, and they, Judas is looking at that and saying, whenever all of this comes together, whenever Jesus does what he has come to do, I am going to be rich. I am going to be exalted. I am going to be uh, so wealthy, even King Solomon would be jealous of me. This is what he was expecting. And so whenever that wasn't materializing... I think the final straw was, once again, whenever Jesus girded himself with the towel and he began to wash their feet. And Judas is looking at this and saying, there's no way this is ever going to pay off. With the way that he is handling his finances, with the way that he is going about his ministry, him going about and washing my feet, there's no way this is going to pay off for me. And so he knew he wasn't going to become rich, and he was disappointed. He had invested so much these few years, and so he decided to cut his losses, and if he couldn't profit from Jesus, he would profit from selling him for 30 pieces of silver. That was his expectation, and he sold the God of all creation for the price of a slave. Third group that we see here with their expectations was the crowds. These are the ones that we are looking at whenever uh, we read this passage in Mark chapter number 11. As they lined the streets, the crowds were weary with Roman uh, occupation. They had no power. The Romans were bleeding them dry from all their taxes. And so they longed for the days of David and Solomon. They had heard the stories and they said, just think what it would be like to live in their kingdom. Think about when we were respected. Think about when we were powerful. Think about when we had influence. Think about when we actually had good and godly leaders over us. We're getting ready to see that again. And so as they're crying out Hosanna, they're saying, make it happen now. They were looking for deliverance. That was their expectation. They thought that Jesus was going to fix all their problems, right? They had this, uh, this idea, almost a, um, the word's escaping me at the moment. 
this utopian idea of Jesus coming and everything is going to be great. When he comes, the ground is going to bring forth an abundance. All of our enemies will flee, will be respected, will be empowered. The Romans are going to be defeated and we are going to get our chance to be on top. That was their expectation. Yes, they might have to pay a price. Yes, they might have to shed their blood to see their deliverance, but what they didn't expect was that Jesus was going to shed his blood to give them deliverance, right? The fourth group we see here is the religious leaders. They had expectations of Jesus, didn't they? Their expectations was a little bit different. They were anxiously watching Jesus as his fame grew and as the crowds grew, as his teaching was undermining them and their corrupt system and undermining their power that they had worked so hard to grasp and gain. And whenever their control started to slip and their efforts to defeat him were constantly thwarted, they expected him to destroy their little kingdom that they had built up. They said, Jesus is going to cost us. Jesus is going to be our undoing. Jesus is going to undo all the things that we hold dear, that we have worked so hard to set up for ourselves. What everybody else was expecting Jesus to give them, they were expecting Jesus to take away. And if you notice in all these groups that we've looked at, their wrong expectations caused them to do stupid things, right? If you look at Peter, he was expecting their ascendancy. He was expecting them to take over and for them to be in charge. And so whenever they tried to arrest Jesus, Peter whipped out the sword and said, okay, boys, it's on. Oh, that was dumb. Remember earlier, Jesus said, sell your cloak, sell your extra, and get a sword. And they said, we have two among us. And he said, that's enough. Remember that? And so Peter's got his sword, and he's feeling confident, and there is all of these temple guards, all of these trained soldiers that are coming their way, and Peter says, okay, I got this. Really, Peter? He didn't even know how to swing the sword. He was a fisherman. He cut the guy's ear off. Okay? That was dumb. He wasn't expecting, Jesus said this was going to happen, but he wasn't expecting it. And then whenever Jesus was crucified, we find that Peter denied him. He abandoned the group. He went fishing. He attempted to return back to his old way of life. Right? And so with that, there was plenty of stupid things that was going on. The rest of the disciples just kind of disbanded. They were dejected and, and in despair because of it. Do we even have to talk about Judas and the stupid things he did because of his expectations? I think we're aware of that. The crowds within days of shouting Hosanna and welcoming Jesus as their Messiah were the same crowds that shouted crucify him. Why? He didn't meet their expectations, right? They were expecting him to come and confront the Romans, not confront the priests. They were expecting him to raise an army, not to sit down and teach and preach. They were expecting anger, rebellion, right? And that's not what they saw. They probably got excited whenever he started fashioning a, a whip of cords, but not so excited whenever he used it on them. 
And so they shouted, crucify him. The religious leaders ended up killing the Son of God so that they could fulfill or keep him from fulfilling their expectations. They said, he can't take away our little kingdom. He can't take away what we're building up. And so in reality, Jesus did what Jesus actually did do far exceeded anything that any of them expected. If you think about on the day of the triumphal entry, no one expected the cross. <clears throat> on the day of the cross, no one expected the resurrection. Jesus continued to surprise them. And so one day, the disciples will rule and reign, but it's not going to be over a little strip of desert in the Middle East. He's promised them seats in his kingdom, right? But it wasn't at the time and the place in the way that they expected. Judas threw away riches far greater than he ever imagined. The Bible says, what, is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? We know that Jesus is more valuable than silver and gold, than all the riches of this world, that he is more valuable. And the eternal life that he is extending is worthy of anything that we would have to give, although he gave it all, and we don't have to. Judas gave up exceeding great riches for 30 pieces of silver because Jesus didn't make him rich in his lifetime. And then the crowds, they wanted to deliver from the Romans, but Jesus came to deliver them from something much greater. He delivered them from the power of sin, death, and hell. He came to give them not a better life. He came to give them eternal life. He came not just to make things improve for a time, but to give them all eternity. And so they didn't, they aimed too low, didn't they? Each of these we find they aimed too low. And the religious leaders they did lose their little kingdom that they built up, but in losing their little kingdom, they tried so hard to hold on to it that they rejected the kingdom that he had offered to them. If they had received him, if they had accepted him, and the Jews at that time would have accepted him as their king, he would have ruled and reigned from then, but he, they wanted to do it on their terms and not on his. And ultimately, all of those men, or most of those men, died and went to hell holding on to their kingdom rather than allowing him to be the king. It's crazy, isn't it? Jesus told them that he didn't come to just patch up their old worn-out garment. He came to give them a new one. He didn't come to, get, to put new wine into old bottles. And so he had something completely different in mind than what they did. And they missed it. And so bringing that to us, bringing that to ap application for us, do you have expectations for Jesus? If you think about him and your relationship with him, what are you trying to get out of it? What are you expecting to receive? Do you have a plan that you've written out, a nice little script that you desire for him to endorse and to stick to? Have you taken up the pen in your life and said, Jesus, this is how I want it to go. This is my roadmap. This is my desire. 
And this is what I am expecting for you to do. And I'd say most of us could say, yes, we do have a plan. We do have a desire. Lord, it would be great if our life would go this way. It would be great if we didn't have this problem, if we saw success in this area, if our children behaved well and they exceeded in life and all of these things happen the way that we want them to happen. We have expectations. We come to him with our plan. And as we have those expectations, has he ever failed to live up to your expectation? Has he ever failed? I'm not saying failed because of who he is and what his plan is. Has he failed to stick to your script? Is there times that you said, that's not what I wanted, Jesus. That's not what I had planned. That's not the way that I think it should have worked, Lord. You have messed up. You have missed out. That's not the way. That's not what I signed up for. That ever happened? Truth is, we have no clue what he has in store. We might be like those Jews on the day of the triumphal entry. We're waving our palm branches. We are bringing him in and we are saying Hosanna and all of our expectations are still before us. And we're thinking, oh, look at what he's going to do. And we've got our plan still. We might be the disciples on the day after the crucifixion with all of our expectations crushed, looking back and seeing all the times that the Lord didn't fit our expectations. When life didn't go according to our plans. In whichever place that you're at, you're in danger of being resentful toward him of being angry or bitter toward God, of being dissatisfied with what he is doing and the plan that he has for you. You read his word and his precious promises and say, I don't get it. It's not lining up. Whenever it says that he works all things together for good, you look at him with disgust and say, this doesn't look good to me, Lord. You ever do that? You had expectations for him. And they've been unmet. But like I said, we don't know what he has in store. Because the truth is, the resurrection day is coming. Whenever all of our expectations are exceeded, whenever we finally see his plan come together, and we can look back and say, that's what he was working out. I couldn't see it at the time, but he was in control from the beginning. He knew what he was doing. He was working it together for good. It didn't feel good. I didn't like the route we traveled, but I am sure happy with the destination. Right? Whenever it all came together, the disciples were happy with the destination. They said, I didn't understand what all this was going for, but now I can sign on. Now I can trust him and I can follow him all the way to the death because he has given me life. There's a big difference, wasn't there? And so with us as Christians, are we looking at Jesus just hoping that he makes our life better? Hoping that he gives us success? That he fulfills our desires and our wishes? That he signs off on our dreams? Are we hoping that he makes our bank accounts bigger? Got the prosperity gospel running muck everywhere, turning everyone against God because of unmet expectations, right? 
He didn't come just to make your bank accounts bigger. If he does, then praise the Lord for it, but that's not always the case. Are you looking for him to make your problem smaller? Lord's going to be my good luck charm. I just follow him. My troubles are going to shrink away. Everyone's going to love me. Everything's going to go just right. My plans are going to fall into place. I'm going to see success in all areas. Is that what happened with his disciples? Is that what happened with his followers down throughout time? Is that what he came to give us? But that's what we expect sometimes. See, whenever we have those kind of expectations, we're not thinking big enough. We're thinking temporal. We're thinking small. We're thinking little. Because in reality, if you know that God is good, if you know that his grace is sufficient, if you know that he extends mercy, that he blesses in spite of us, that he loves us so much that he bled and died for us, then we can lay down our pen and let him author our story. We can get out of the seat, the driver's seat, and allow him to choose our directions. We can allow him to guide our footsteps. We can allow him to open the doors and close them. We can give him permission to give and to take away, as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because we know he's good and we know that he is God, and we know that he knows so much more than what we do, and he is so much more capable than what we are, right? And so we can take our expectations and set them aside and let him be God. We can let him do what only he can do and bring about only what he can bring. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, you might be like some of these. You may have expectations. You may expect him to accept your good works, your religiosity, you might expect him to just sign off and say, oh, they're a good kid. They'll be okay. Or you might be looking at him in fear like the Pharisees, like the religious leaders and saying, I'm afraid of him. I don't know what he has in store. I don't know what it's going to cost me. I don't know what he's going to take away from me. I am afraid of what he's going to do. I'm expecting disaster. But either way, you're going to be wrong. Because that's not what God has in store for us. He doesn't accept our good works. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, but he has come to give us his righteousness. He has given up his life so that we can have eternal life. He is not going to take away from us anything but our guilt and our shame and our sin and our filthiness and give to us life and give it more abundantly. What you will lose to him is going to be a gain. And so if you're here today and don't know Jesus as your Savior, don't let your expectations keep you from him. But instead, let him be God. Let him be who he said he was. Put your faith and trust in his shed blood on the Calvary as sufficient for you, as sufficient to pay the price which you owe for the sins that you've committed and allow him to forgive your sins and save your soul. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So wherever you are today in your walk with God, your relationship with God, 
Don't allow your expectations to cause you to do stupid things. Don't allow your expectations to cause you to miss his plan and his will. And for heaven's sakes, do not allow your expectations to keep you from his salvation. So that is my challenge to you today. Line up your expectations with the truth of who he is. Throw away all the things that you have devised of your own mind and let him be God. Trust him and follow him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we can put our lives in your hands. And Lord, I know there's times that I want to be in control. There's times that I try to force my expectations upon you. Help me, Lord, to, uh, to just put my faith, my trust in you and allow you to be God because you are God and I am not. If there's one here today that is struggling, maybe they've got some bitterness or resentment, maybe life hasn't went the way that they want it to, help them, Lord, to trust you until your work is accomplished, until your plan comes to fruition. And if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would throw all these things aside that is stopping them, and they would trust you as a Savior of their soul, the forgiver of their sins, their only way to heaven and to righteousness. Pray that today would be the day they call upon you. We thank you. We do love you. We praise you for all that you are. Help us to, to keep this and meditate upon it throughout this week, Lord, throughout this holy week, as we remember the things that you've done to purchase our eternal life. We thank you for all you do in Jesus' name and amen. Mm-hmm.